0: From Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host, Eric P. For this? So powerful. for a stopping seconds. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol, in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So... Buckle up, and let's get started. A little bit better than dope, biz, A brand new kid to show, biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I now do me a favor. favor, let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a tape. I'm having major audio headaches. I don't know what the problem is. There's some stupid delay when I'm using these line in programs from Rogue Amoeba and I can't figure out why the audio seems quiet on my vocals and then it, or loud on my vocals and then quiet on the sound clips. Hopefully I'll get it worked out and it'll sound okay in post-production, but if it sounds weird, I apologize and I'm just really frustrated with what's going on here. So I'm gonna work through it, man, because I'm a professional, but you should know that I'm having some headaches and there's this weird echo in my mic, so I'm turning the volume up and Down as I record. Whatever, you don't care about the stuff. Let's get to the stuff. Uh, Okay, here's the thing when you're playing a video game or reading a book or something like that, you're working on a project, I've learned something important. I posted this to the new subreddit that I've started called Attention Young People. You can go check that out because I started it and it's awesome. You can share your wisdom with younger individuals. When you're playing a game or you're reading a book, you should reach a point where you're really curious about what's going to happen next or you're really looking forward to some next bit and then take a break. That's a good time to take a break because then when you come back to it, You're going to have the attitude of, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next, or I'm really interested in this next part. If you stop reading a book or you stop playing a game during a part that's boring or if you're frustrated or confused by something, then when you go back to it, that thought is, oh, that's that annoying, boring thing that I'm going back to. And you don't want to be in that mindset. So it's all about adjusting your reality, dude, and you can can affect that. Uh, also, I'm sorry that it's taken me so long to put out another syncast. It's been two weeks since the last one, and it's just been crazy. I don't know what to say. School and bowling started up again, and we're doing the veteran gamers and all sorts of other stuff, East Timor work and ha- what have you. And so, yeah, I apologize for that. Hopefully we'll be back on track and getting it done every week. But I can't promise nothing, people. I'm a busy man, and Saturday is my, like, day off, day off. So for me to devote an hour, maybe an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, getting these freaking audio things right – uh that, that eats up some of my Saturdays. So you should be glad I'm doing this at all, man. Just show thank you. There's thanks. no good on Salvador. Have you heard of Eastermore? Where well, are all the doctors gone? There's no way to step and all. Some people will sing this song. What's going on in the world? First of all, we're going to start with Wisconsin, where the Act 10 thing was adjusted. Uh, the uh, federal judge said that, the or state judge, I don't really know what level the judge was at, but he ruled the... Uh, Act 10 law that Walker and company passed as unconstitutional. So there's this whole thing about where local school districts are. And this was the thing that said that unions couldn't bargain for anything other than base salary. And it's caused the whole state to now be in a state of limbo. So we're waiting. It's probably going to, almost certainly going to go to the state Supreme Court. And we're just waiting to see what they decide. In the meantime, unions and school districts are sort of in this, again, limbo area. And it, it... Unions don't want to push too hard, and school districts don't want to push too hard, so we're all just sort of waiting and seeing. Maybe we can push for some things a little bit more. Due process is one of the big things that people want to make sure we protect, but there's a lot of things on the table there, so when I know something, you'll know something. Meanwhile, speaking of union headaches, there's been this whole thing with the NFL referee lockout, and I don't follow sports at all, like, not at all, I don't care at all about sports, really. A a little bit about, you know, soccer or football as they call it in the rest of the world. Um, But this NFL referee lockout was very interesting to me because suddenly everybody was paying attention to the fact that when you bring in non-union labor, you often get much lower quality. And that's exactly what seems to have happened in the NFL referee lockout. As you can see, uh, well, as some people have mentioned, some of the refs that were locked out, uh, some of the refs that were brought in, the non-union refs, uh, had been fired by the Lingerie Football League, which, who knows what the hell that is, uh, but it's uh, an interesting example of what scab labor will get you. And there was a very interesting on Democracy Now! with a guy named Dave Zirin. And if you follow sports, you probably know who he is. If you're on the left side of the political spectrum, you may have seen some stuff by him. He's a cool writer. He talks a lot about class and race in sports. And so he did an interview uh, with Democracy Now! And at one point, the correspondent Nermeen Sheikh asked him, Dave Ziering, can you explain why people like, as we mentioned, people like Scott Walker have come out in favor of the referees union? And Dave Ziering gave a great response. He said, I mean, I would argue personally it's because Scott Walker might be a sociopath. I mean, this is somebody who does not care if there are untrained teachers in the classrooms of Wisconsin, does not care if there are untrained, non-unionized firefighters putting out the fires in Wisconsin, but he desperately wants skilled union officials on the field. But the bigger reason is that Scott Walker, like Paul Ryan, they're both Green Bay Packers fans, which is also Very ironic, because the Green Bay Packers are the one team in the National Football League that don't actually have a billionaire plutocrat in the owner's box overseeing the proceedings. They're owned by over 200,000 fans in a collective manner, which also goes against the Randian philosophy which seems to guide Scott Walker and Paul Ryan breakfast, lunch, and dinner end quote, and I love that answer the whole interview I'm just going, yeah, Dave's here, and you tell him, man, go ahead, that's awesome, and so yeah, the Green Bay Packers were the ones who were at a disadvantage from this bad call from the scab refs, and uh, I dare say if the Green Bay Packers had won the game based on a bad call, they probably wouldn't be as upset. But a lot of people were very upset. And it seems to have resolved the issue because now the refs are back in the NFL. And hopefully, I mean, when you look at the thing, what was going on, it was all about the owners being greedy. And that leads me to the next piece. This guy named Jeffrey Chidea on the referee lockout at ESPN.com. He had a great uh, perspective. He said, as much as people want to apply blame to both sides in a labor squabble, it's impossible for me not to fault the owners on this one. It's, that's not just because they had more than enough money to resolve some of the major issues the officials brought to the table. It's because the owners so clearly bet on fans siding with them when the regular season began. They thought we didn't care about the refs before this point and we weren't going to care about them once the real games began. end quote. And what we saw was, first of all, NFL makes nine billion dollars a year. The National Football League makes $9 billion a year. For them to say we can't afford to pay refs' pensions is just ludicrous. That's absolutely ridiculous. It's insane, and it's it's shocking. And, and 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 a lot of people who were commenting on the lockout said that, well, viewership didn't go up or down. I mean, viewership, if anything, went up when these bad refs started making these bad calls because that's exciting. So from the market perspective, there was no impetus for the owners to end the strike, or you know, it wasn't a strike, but to and bring the real refs back. So it was only when people stood up and said, hey, we demand quality refereeing, well, duh what do you know? That actually means something and as my brother Mark put up on the Facebook, there's a cool picture that said union equals quality and we need professionals, unionized professionals on the football field just like we need unionized professionals in the classroom. Amen, dude. Uh, Speaking about something a little more important, uh, there was a really interesting article in, I think, Salon or no, it was Al Jazeera.com about a guy named Adnan Farhan Abdul Latif who died recently at Guantanamo Bay without ever having been charged with a crime. I encourage you to read the whole article. It's called Chronicle of a Death Foretold because it's just heartbreaking and very powerful. Here's an excerpt Latif had long complained of abuse by prison staff and of his deteriorating physical and mental condition during his imprisonment. Two years earlier, he had written that guards, quote, entered my cell on a regular basis. They throw me and drag me on the floor. They strangle me and press hard behind my ears until I lose consciousness, end quote. In 2009, he slit his wrists in an attempt to end his life, writing about the incident later to his lawyer to say that his circumstances in Guantanamo, quote, make death more desirable than living, end quote. Now, a lot of people who hear that, coming out of the article, a lot of people who hear this are going to have the attitude of, well, these people are hardcore terror and they've been killing Americans, and who cares what happens to them. But the fact is that nobody in Guantanamo, very few people in Guantanamo, have ever been charged with crimes, and there's been no due process for the people in Guantanamo. It's just this never-ending Kafka-esque waiting period, and there are these secret military tribunals. There's no access to lawyers. It goes against everything our judicial process is supposed to be about. And that basis of the system of law and fair trial and the right to an attorney, that's the basis of... like. Like, what makes America great? And if we don't have that, then we're really selling out our own principles. And I think that sucks. And this is the tragedy with Latif. Back to the article, while during all his years in custody, Latif has never been charged nor convicted of any crime related to terrorism or any other offense, his death now is made even more tragic due to the fact that he had been recommended for release from Guantanamo by the Department of Defense since as early as 2004 and again in 2007, which said at the time that it had determined that he, quote, is not known to have participated in any combatant or terrorist training, end quote. So, what the hell? Why was this guy still in Guantanamo? And how many other people in Guantanamo are in this same situation? I'm not going to pretend like everybody in Guantanamo is Mr. Rogers, but I also refuse to believe the hype that these are the worst of the worst, everybody there's there for a good reason, and blah, 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 because this case is a powerful wake-up call to that whole notion of how people are sentenced to Guantanamo, and and why they're kept there, and why they're not released when it's clear that they don't have any uh, charges to be leveled against them, and Ah, Close it now, damn it. Obama, you didn't push hard enough for that, and I know that the Republicans made it very difficult to close Guantanamo, but you know what? You're the President of the United States. You probably could have found a way. And I just think he was too worried about expending his political capital, and I don't envy Obama's situation as giving him the benefit of the doubt, but I also think he didn't push hard enough, and we still have bases all over the world where we're doing the same sort of thing, and we're doing the extraordinary rendition, so I don't know. It's not very... uh, a good mark on Obama's record, not to mention all the warrantless wiretaps and the dropping of the bombs with drones and the reclassification of all the males in the area as combatants and blah, blah, blah. On a brighter note, The Economist put out an opinion piece recently that's called Peeing to Participate, and it included this very interesting quote. There is little reliable evidence that drug testing has any positive effect on companies' productivity, safety, or bottom line. So why are we still doing this? It violates the Fourth Amendment, which guarantees us the right to freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, and examining the urine of everybody in a company is not reasonable cause for search and seizure of that urine So I just, yeah, no, boo, drug testing. And the economist agrees with me. There's something that doesn't happen often. The economist and I, we're like this, man. Meanwhile, from the PB&J file, Police Brutality and Justice, pretty clever, uh, there were no ch- criminal charges for the, quote, pepper spray cop at UC Davis, that dude that was walking along the a group of protesters that were seated on the sidewalk and just spraying them down with the pepper spray. There's no criminal charges against him. What's up with that? There's this settlement, and the protesters are getting you know a couple thousand dollars each, but there's no criminal charges. That's so bogus. This is from an NPR story assistant chief deputy district attorney michael cabral says his office has concluded quote there is insufficient evidence to establish proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the use of force involved in the november eighteenth two thousand eleven pepper spraying was unlawful and therefore warrants the filing of criminal charges end quote later in the article it says Pike and other officers, quote, believed that they and their prisoners, the protesters, were surrounded by a hostile mob and that the pepper spraying was necessary to clear the pathway so the officers and their prisoners could leave. Are, end quote, are you freaking kidding me? Have you seen that video? A hostile mob? First of all, a hostile mob at UC Davis? Are you kidding me? I can't imagine a place where there's less chance of being a hostile mob. Maybe in Celebration Florida, like, oh, they're going to go to Celebration Florida. These are There was a hostile mob! Again, it's the fallacy of empire's ineptitude. This notion that the cops are helpless, like, there's nothing we can do. We were surrounded. We didn't have a choice. Eh, We're so incompetent. We're so helpless. Wee, wee, wee. Pathetic. Send him to prison now. This guy clearly abused his role as a police officer. He did not obey the, uh, uh, you know, serve the public trust. He did not protect the innocent. He did not uphold the law. Robocop would be slapping the cuffs on this dude unless he worked for Omni Consumer products Booyah! How do you like that? Robocop reference, I'm all about it. What? Well, here to Tech Nox. from the gate now. Dash moves <laughs> everything around me. Free get the money. Dollar, dollar, billion. In the economics file, we have an update about Foxconn. If you don't know, Foxconn is a place, uh, it's a company in China that makes a lot of electronics for consumers in the United States and Europe and elsewhere. Uh, They make a lot of products for Apple. They make all the iPhones. They make Hewlett Packard products, a lot of stuff for uh, major consumer, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. They make a lot of consumer electronics, the computers. You probably own something that was made by Foxconn. And uh, last year uh, and a couple of years in the past, there have been a rash of suicides from Foxconn workers. Uh, I won't go into all that again. But the news is there was a series of worker riots at Foxconn. And this article that I have here is from Business Week. And there's some interesting details in it. Earlier this week, the turmoil forced Foxconn to shut production down for a day. That melee involved 2,000 workers with 40 hospitalized. And while the company initially blamed the extended brawl on a dormitory dispute between workers from two different provinces that got out of control, that version of events is being questioned. Instead, tensions between guards and workers seems to have had a role in sparking the incident, says Jeffrey Crothall, research director at Hong Kong's China Labor Bulletin. Quote, it just makes sense given what we know about the heavy-handed ways of the security apparatus at Foxconn, Crowthal says. They have a long-standing reputation of being heavy-handed and harsh with workers. Then they have quotes from some of the workers. Quote, the guards here use gangster style to manage, said Fang Zhongyang, a 23-year-old worker from Henan province speaking to a Bloomberg news reporter from outside the factory campus gates. Quote, we are not against following rules, but you have to tell us why. They won't explain things, and we feel we cannot communicate with them, Fang said. Another worker uh, said, they are quite formidable, said Al Bo, a 25-year-old worker who has been at the factory for six months, quote, they watch quite closely and speak fiercely. Later in the article, while conditions, they talked about there's been this group that's been monitoring the labor conditions at one of the plants. And so they talk about this. While conditions may indeed have gotten better in the three facilities Foxconn opened for inspection, those included their two Shenzhen factories as well as one in Chengdu, Sichuan, that may not be the case for the rest of their Chinese facilities. Later in the article, another important factor, the rising rights awareness of a new younger generation of Chinese workers. That has helped drive a surge in protests across China, which have increased this year, over 2011, by workers more aware and more assertive of their rights, says Krothal. Out of the article from a moment, if you go to the website of the China Labor Bulletin, uh, the Hong Kong uh, Observation Group, there's a really interesting report they have about the the past 10 years and what it has meant for labor rights in China. And we hear a lot about what's going on in China, but we hear it through a very narrow filter in terms of, oh, well, they're expanding markets, everybody's getting richer, Blah. but this uh, report from China Labor Bulletin has a really interesting overview, and I'll add a link from my website for the CLB report about what what the kind of turmoil that's been going on in China. And it really mirrors the turmoil that we saw in the United Kingdom and in the United States when those countries were going through their uh, industrialization manufacturing explosion phase and workers said, hey, look, you, the bosses are getting crazy paid behind all this industrialization and manufacturing. We workers demand more of a cut of that, better working conditions, etc., and we're seeing that in China, and I think before long we'll have a bunch of reports about how oh the workers in China are getting so wealthy and so you know fat and plump off of all this uh, capital that they're getting, and now manufacturing is going to have to go elsewhere, uh, and we'll see other you know third world countries suddenly getting an influx of you know capital, manufacturing facilities, and so forth. Anyway, back to the article. One last quote. Uh, Crothall says, quote, they are better educated and have higher expectations about what work should involve, he says, and they have a greater sense of self-worth. They believe they should be treated with dignity and self-respect and they will stand up to anyone that doesn't treat them that way, end quote. So go ahead, Foxconn workers. You deserve better treatment. You deserve decent pay, and you deserve reasonable limitation of working hours, which is a huge problem in these Foxconn factories, even if the conditions aren't that bad. And, you know, the reason they have to work these extended overtime hours is because they're supporting their families in the rural areas where there is no work. And yes, I know the argument that says, oh, well, if Apple wasn't there, these people would have no work at all. But that doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want to them. There's still international labor standards that ought to be upheld, and Apple should be ashamed of itself for not giving the workers' decent time off and, you know, limitation of worker hours uh, in, 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 in return for getting a decent wage. Living wage for every worker around the world now. Yes. Meanwhile, the New York Times had a very interesting piece called Don't Tell Anyone But The Stimulus Worked. And this is what it said. On the most basic level, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act is responsible for saving and creating 2.5 million jobs. The majority of economists agree that it helped the economy grow by as much as 3.8% and kept the unemployment rate from reaching 12%. The stimulus is the reason, in fact, that most Americans are better off than they were four years ago when the economy was in serious danger of shutting down. Coming out of the article, it's easy for us to get... I mean, Mitt Romney, I think, had a soft law ball right over home plate because he could be battering the uh, Obama administration with, look, they haven't made things even better because uh, uh, what Obama had to do was stop the economy from spiraling down into the nether regions of hell and slowly try to bring it back up, which he's been doing and the stimulus is part of that. Now. When the stimulus is being debated, Paul Krugman and lots of other people said that the proposed stimulus and what was eventually passed wasn't nearly big enough, and we needed an actual New uh, Deal-style government works program that would actually put people to work directly and provide a lot of sustained jobs for people, and that would stimulate the economy, and that is sort of what happened, but on a very small scale. It should have been much bigger, it should have had a better impact, and we wouldn't have this sustained unemployment that we have, but as the New York Times points out, it could have been a lot worse. But as many people else have pointed out, uh, it's hard to run on the platform of it could have been a lot worse. But anyway, uh, so back to the piece. The stimulus did far more than stimulate. It protected the most vulnerable from the recession's heavy winds. Of the act's $840 billion final cost, $1.5 billion went to rent subsidies and emergency housing that kept 1.2 million people under roofs. That's why the recession didn't produce rampant homelessness. Now, we have seen, out of the article, we have seen rampant, rampant foreclosure. And there's a lot of criticism of the Obama administration that even though it helped Wall Street banks that caused the recession, it did not help homeowners who are suddenly finding themselves kicked out of their houses. And that's a concern. That's a problem. That's a beef I have with Obama. But I'll give credit where credit's due. Back to the piece. It increased spending on food stamps, unemployment benefits, and Medicaid, keeping at least 7 million Americans from falling below the poverty line. And, as Mr. Grunwald, author of The New New Deal, shows, it made crucial investments in neglected economic sectors that are likely to pay off for decades. It jump-started the switch to electronic medical records, which will largely end the use of paper records by 2015. It poured more than $1 billion into comparative effectiveness research on pharmaceuticals. It extended broadband internet to thousands of rural communities. And it spent $90 billion on a huge variety of wind, solar, and other clean energy projects that revived the industry. Republicans, of course, only want to talk about Solyndra, but most of the green investments have been quite successful and renewable power output has doubled. So what? Take that. Yes. Good data to have. Uh, Bookmark that one, people, because it's a nice one to have ready when people start going, Stimulus, are a You're just wasting time. And of course, as I said before, Paul Ryan said, oh, I didn't accept any stimulus funds. It's a waste of money. But then he later admitted that he did accept stimulus funds and it was a good thing for the people of Wisconsin. And you know what? It was a good thing for America and we should have made it even bigger. And yeah, government does good things sometimes. From the duh file, the Atlantic had this big report that they did a lot of research on. And again, it's good to have this in your files when people start going, tax cuts, tax cuts. The Atlantic did this comprehensive research study. uh, A 65-year study finds that tax cuts don't lead to economic growth. So we should have put this in the dustbin of history years ago, but we still have people prattling on who believe in this orthodox, fundamentalist way that lower taxes always benefit economic growth, and it's not true. It's not true that they hurt growth, but it's not true that they help growth. It's like if you bury some baby teeth in your backyard, is that going to help you find money on the sidewalk? No, there's no correlation. And the same is true about tax cuts and economic growth. I'm sorry. I think this should be the final nail in the coffin. It won't be. But if you run into people who are like, hey, tax cuts all the time, good, meh. uh, No, tell them that it's not a decent way to look at economic growth. Uh, meanwhile, there have been a few stories about high-frequency trading. Uh, The first one comes to us from the Financial Times, and it's from the Federal Reserve in the United States. The headline is, Fed warns high-frequency trading firms. Now, a warning and actually doing something about it are quite different things, but given the fact that the Fed, whenever the Fed makes a statement about things, the markets tend to react wildly. Oh, you know, for a while, Alan Greenspan was all about, like, I'm going to stick my head out and say something today. And the markets were all waiting with bated breath so anyway here's the article uh, part of it many high frequency trading firms are taking shortcuts in their risk controls as they seek out faster ways to trade a US regional Federal Reserve Bank has warned the study by the Federal Reserve Board of Chicago found many high speed traders were relying on others to catch an out of control algorithm or erroneous trade and called for controls to be tightened the findings come as US regulators look to shore up a crisis of confidence in domestic markets after a string of incidents in recent years stemming from their reliance on algorithms for trading among them Include and this is nothing new to listeners of this podcast among them include glitches to the listings of bats global markets and facebook the flash crash of 2010 and an errant algorithm used by night capital a large u.s broker in august the securities and exchange commission is planning an industry roundtable next month to discuss ways to improve risk monitoring and apply quote kill switches to trading in an attempt to prevent market dislocation okay i'm sorry An industry roundtable? What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. There was an industry roundtable at the time of the BP spill. And all the oil companies sit around. It's like on The Wire when all the drug kingpins sit around. They go, how are you going to get more of these drugs out? And everyone's like, there's been a lot of cop killing lately. And one of the people goes, yeah, I got to deal with that. You know, cops, they got to get got. And everyone goes, well, just try to do it more quietly, okay? That's exactly what happens at these industry roundtables, okay? When BP oil spill happened, there was an industry roundtable probably. And everybody was sitting around going, yeah, look, BP, man. You're spilling all that oil. And Tony Hayward's like, man, I want my life back, dude. This sucks. I'm going to try to clean it up as fast as I can. And everyone's like, you're making us look bad. He's like, yeah, we'll deal with it. Don't worry. That's what an industry roundtable is. It's a way for them to get their needs met and and spin a little PR. We're very concerned about it. No, the government needs to put on some freaking brakes. Regulation is the only thing Wall Street understands. And until we start regulating this... Frequency trading stuff, it's going to keep happening. We're going to have more flash crashes. Mark my words. You heard it here, folks. When when the next flash crash happens, I'm going to be laughing my head off. And you're all going to know exactly what caused it. And you're going to be like, dude, Eric told us about that. We should have listened to Duke Scad. We should make him head of the Federal Reserve. Don't actually make me head of the Federal Reserve. But I'm saying, though, that I'm telling you it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Meanwhile, there's been a Senate panel that's looking into high-frequency stock trades. Again, I feel like this is a toothless way for the government to posture and make it look like it's doing something about this, but there's nothing actually going to be done. I hope there's something going to be done, but I'm very skeptical about whether or not anything's actually going to happen. But here's the article that comes to us from The Washington Post. The technological revolution that has swept through Wall Street and enabled stock trades to take place in milliseconds has thrust the equity market into a crisis that demands a regulatory response, a former high-frequency trader told Congress on Thursday. David Lauer, who left his job at a high-frequency trading firm in Chicago last year, told a Senate panel that the ultra-fast trades that now dominate the stock market have contributed to frequent market disruptions and alienated retail investors. Quote, U.S. equity markets are in dire straits, Lauer said in his written testimony. The comments came as Washington struggles to figure out how to keep up with the trading practice that firms use to purchase and sell huge volumes of stocks in fractions of a second, often to take advantage of market inconsistencies. This so-called high-frequency trading, along with the automated nature of stock markets in general, played a role in alarming technology glitches that policymakers say they're compelled to address. They're compelled to address. Yeah. In what way? No, no meaningful way. It's just, oh, you know, we're going to address it. Yeah. Just about every witness who participated in the hearing acknowledged the advantages of automated trading. High-speed computers that crunch millions of quotes a second provide more accurate market prices to retail investors with lower transaction fees. Mmm, I don't know about that. That feels kind of specious to me. That sounds like self-justification from the people that do it. Like, everybody's going to say what they do is important. You're not going to have anybody go, yeah, I do this thing, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't help anybody. No, everybody's going to try to justify their existence, but I'm not convinced by that. Anyway, moving on to the article. A, a quote. Quote, our sense is that the almost myopic quest for speed has threatened the very market itself, said this guy named Brooks, uh, whose firm caters to long-term investors. It also seems that many high-frequency trading strategies are designed to initiate an order to simply gauge the market's reaction and then quickly react and transact faster than other investors can, end quote. And this is like in Sneakers, where the dude's like, uh, Ben Kingsley character's all about, uh, you, you make people think that the banks may be unstable. They start running on the banks and then the bank collapses. Uh, translation, you can make a bank fail. He's like, eh, I've already done that. Maybe you've heard of a couple savings and loans, uh, commodities market. Yes. Futures market. Yes. Small countries. He's like, I might even be able to crash the whole damn system. That's what's going on here. People. It's sneakers in real life. I'm not insane. Back to the article, Chris Concanon, executive vice president of Virtue Financial, how is that for an Orwellian name for a company, Virtue Financial, an electronic market maker told the panel that moving faster probably adds no value. Moving faster probably adds no value, but, quote, if we regulate speed, then what speed do we move at, he asked. How about a speed that's a little slower than what we got now? Just put the brakes on a little bit. That's all I'm asking for, people. It really is, okay? And make the kill switches solid. Make a human able to... I mean, dude, look... If RoboCop taught us anything, it's that that moment when the ED-209 was clearly malfunctioning was when you need a kill switch that a person can go boop, and then it just shuts right down, okay? We didn't have that, and that's why that poor executive from OCP got killed to death on the model of New Detroit, okay? And Delta City, I'm sorry. Please don't send me letters. It's not called New Detroit. It's called Delta City. I know. But we got to have that, and if we don't have that, the machines are going to take over, and they'll kill all of us. It's going to happen, people, so mark my words. Don't let it happen. I beg you. Speaking of technology run amok, thank you to the Duchess for giving me this article. It is called UW Madison Lab Works with Controversial Data for Chicago Schools. Oh, they're doing this. Okay. Uh, uh. So here's the thing. There's these value-added models where they test the kid at the beginning of the year, they test the kid at the end of the year. The difference in the test scores shows how much value that teacher has added. Okay, That's what, it's, that's what it is. Okay? And apparently this lab at the UW-Madison is providing these value-added models so that the Chicago school system can figure out how effective each teacher is. That's the idea behind it. It's a freaking setup. Here's the article these so-called value-added models not only take into account standardized test results, but a range of other factors that might affect scores, including family income levels, a student's race, English language ability, and the like. Using such measures, a school that reports solid standardized test scores could still receive relatively low value-added marks if the school's demographics indicate that the scores should be even higher. Conversely, a different school might have middle-of-the-road standardized test results, but receive a high value-added mark because the makeup of that school's population suggests that the scores should have been far worse. So, out of the article for a second this is a step in the right direction because it says okay yeah there's a lot of things that affect the students test scores and the score alone should not be the only basis of it but the the, the danger here is that they're assuming that they're going to be able to use this model to say well this is purely a representation of the teacher's ability But it's not. There are so many reasons why students do well or don't do well and why they evolve during the course of a year. I can't tell you the number of student writing pieces I have read that said I just chose to shut down my freshman year. It just seemed too overwhelming, my parents were getting a divorce, we had just moved, Uh, the alignment of the planets was off, there's so many reasons, and the students are right up front, I just didn't do my work, I didn't do my homework, I didn't pay attention to class, whatever it is. That happens a lot now don't get me wrong a lot of times bad teachers make students turn off and they're like whatever I don't care I've had a lot of students say to me like dude your English class is the best one I've ever had and I never really cared about English but now I do so I know that good teachers can reawaken students love of learning but I've also had a lot of students who for various reasons didn't get on the train didn't do very well in my class and they were the first to admit that a lot of times it had to do with their disinterest in the material how are you gonna do that? Are you gonna fire a teacher if you don't make, the, if they can't make the kid care about the class? Anyway, um, back to the article, quote, uh, so uh, Meyer, one of the guys works in this lab, uh, so if you agree that teacher evaluations are appropriate and decide on what test scores to use and what other measures to indicate, then you have to decide on what's the right method to pull together all that information and filter out what part is due to the students and their situation and what part is due to the teachers, says Meyer. But no, out of the article now, what no one ever talks about is what part is, quote, due to the students. That never comes into the equation. You will never hear a school administrator saying, well, you know, the students didn't really, you know, the students didn't show a lot of interest. They didn't really push themselves very hard. And don't get me wrong, that can easily become a way for teachers to shift the blame onto the students and for them to fail to examine their own practices and try to make their teaching better. But it's equally unfair to say that it's only a matter of how well the teachers do their job. It's a two-way street. When uh, Mr. Miyagi meets up with daniel Son, he puts the bandana on his head and says, I teach, you learn. And daniel Son goes, yes. That contract is the basis of all teaching. If daniel Son had not said, yes, I will do what you say, the karate kid would never have worked he would have just i'm not painting your fence screw you and your car and he would get into the ring and he'd get pummeled to a bloody pulp and then he'd go mr miyagi you suck and uh, mr miyagi's administrators would come by and go you didn't adequately uh, address daniel son's needs and you didn't meet all his varied uh learning styles and you didn't address his uh, you know lack of interest in blah 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 it would be a completely different movie If Danielson doesn't agree to pull his weight, then we have a problem, and that never gets discussed. It's like asking about how much test scores are affected by pixie dust or the alignment of the planets, and that's the point. This whole thing is a godforsaken setup, okay? These people who work at these UW lab, God bless them for trying to push things in the right direction by saying, like, look, even though somebody doesn't get very high test scores, they may have come a long way since the year before, and that's great, but it's still a setup because there's still a number of other things that can go. Into the whether a teacher uh, whether a class do, does well on standardized tests or not, and I'll give you an analogy there's this really interesting piece from AtomicHeritage.org about a uh, it's called the Scientist Petition a Forgotten Wartime Protest here's a summary many of the Los Alamos scientists who worked so hard to create the first atomic bombs they petitioned President Truman not to drop them on Japan they believed they were working on a tool to stop Hitler from taking over the world when he, when Hitler surrendered the scientists begged for the bombs to be locked away forever uh, a guy named William Lanouette wrote quote their petition highlights a cruel duality shared by all scientists, eager to reveal nature's secrets. They are then often powerless to influence how their discoveries are used. And that's what exactly what's happening with these value-added models coming up by these UW-Madison lab workers. They're creating a tool that will be used, mark my words, will be used to batter and assault teachers who are busting their humps every day to try to reach kids who aren't doing very well and try to help them to do better and all that, these tools these value added models are going to be used to batter those teachers and to accuse them of being crap and to assault their integrity and to destroy unions and to break apart due process provisions and it's a setup i'm sorry it's still a setup if here's the thing if there weren't the high stakes attached to it then I would be totally in favor of using these value-added models. I would love to know what the data says about how much value I've added to the students' scores. I would love to know that information. The question is what's done with that information? And the answer to that question is it's going to be used to hurt good teachers. Okay? It might be used to get rid of some bad teachers, but it will also be used to get rid of a lot of good teachers. And that's the problem, is that we have this totally unnuanced view of how education works, because no student will ever say it was entirely the teacher's doing that I did well in this class. They shouldn't say that because it's not true. Kids work their butts off to do well in a p English class or whatever it is, and the teacher presumably also works hard. If the kid succeeds it's going to be equal parts, teacher and student effort okay and if the student doesn't do well, that might be because the teacher's totally dropping the ball. It might be because the student's totally dropping the ball or it might be because both of them are dropping the ball, okay. But we have an unsophisticated view of that, which says when the student does well, it's entirely because the student worked hard or the teacher did a really good job. If a student doesn't do well, it's the teacher's fault alone. That's it. End of discussion. And that's ridiculous. That's completely ludicrous. That's like saying if a football team loses, well, it's entirely the quarterback's fault. The quarterback might be awesome. He might have horrible people blocking for him. He might have wide receivers who can't catch a cold. He might have you know, a coach who doesn't know what he's doing. There's all sorts of reasons why a team might fail. And the same is true about education. It's not fair to blame teachers alone. That's exactly what's happening with these value-added models. Shame on you, UW lab workers. You ought to know where this is going. You ought to say you cannot use our stuff unless you divorce it from high-stakes consequences. However, there was a really good piece in the New York Times Sunday edition, uh, an opinion piece called, Are We Asking Too Much From Our Teachers? And this is from Alex Kotlowitz, if I'm not mistaken. Let me see where the website redirects me. Yes, Alex Kotlowitz, who is the uh, author of There Are No Children Here. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. He was the a, a author and producer of the documentary, The Interrupters, a really cool dude. And this piece is awesome. And here's a short excerpt from that. Somehow, we've come to believe that with really good teachers and longer school days and rigorous testing, we can transform children's lives. And, and, and out of the article, you know, sometimes we can, but that key word is Sometimes. Back to the article. We've imagined teachers as lazy, excuse-making, quasi-professionals, or, alternatively, as lifesavers. But the truth, of course, is more complicated. Quality schools and quality teaching clearly can make a difference in children's lives, sometimes a huge difference. But we too often attempt to impute to teachers impossible powers. Now, I've been saying this for years, and it goes far beyond mere poverty. Students are dealing with all sorts of issues, most of which we, especially teachers, can only try to help with. I mean, guidance counselors that I talk with can only do so much themselves, and they're the professionals who are there to help with the, the divorce and the depression and the drug addiction and the poverty and all the rest of the issues. They can only do so much. What are teachers expected to do? I see these kids for 45 minutes a day. What am I supposed to, how much of a bond can I make for 18 weeks? That's the only time I get with them. I'm supposed to magically transform their entire lives? Absolutely not. I wrote about this in my blog post, How Do Students Get Better. Here's an excerpt education historian Diane Ravitch and political economist Jean Anion have pointed to the urgency of addressing poverty among students but there are obviously many other factors as well a student from a background of economic comfort might wrestle with other areas of insecurity such as abuse neglect divorce degraded self-image lack of rest due to a hectic after work schedule either because his family needs the money or because he wants to buy some electronic gadget or a combination of these and or other factors to add yet another layer of complexity sometimes a student will feign one obstacle to success while the actual problem lies elsewhere They'll be like, oh, I just didn't understand it. When the fact is that you didn't freaking take any notes, didn't ask any questions, and doesn't care to understand it. I do not believe that educators can do nothing to help students to deal with the various deficits in their individual hierarchies of needs. But I know from my own experience as a student and the decade I have spent in the classroom as a teacher that a journey into authentic, self-actualized intellectual exploration is a long and complicated expedition. Perhaps student A needs patient understanding and empathy, while student B needs stern discipline. And the reverse may be true the very next day." coming out of my excerpt from this piece I wrote think about your own life how many days have you woken up and it's just stuff doesn't seem right you just feel kind of down in the dumps for no reason that you can put your finger on and some maybe you don't try very hard at work that day. Or maybe you just sort of muddle through and you're like, if I can just get to the weekend, that'll be fine. And other days you have the exact opposite experience, right? Some days you wake up and you're like, I could take on the world. And you put in lots of extra work and you push yourself really hard. What makes us think that students are any different? But no, it's always going to be right down to whether teachers are pushing that kid enough or not. Oh, Back to the thing I wrote. Like many teachers, I sicken myself with worry that perhaps I'm not being rigorous enough to come with some students or that I'm being too demanding of others. Ultimately, as with all areas of life, it's a matter of balance. Alas, the more focused we are on pushing every student toward a uniformity of thought and activity, the less able we are to help students become metacognitively aware of their own academic, social, emotional, and intellectual needs. In the end, however, this awareness is precisely what each student needs because it is the only way for them to grow and get better. Fortunately, there's a really good web series called, not a web series, a documentary series called Frontline on PBS. It's fantastic. If you go to the PBS Frontline main page, there are dozens and dozens of documentaries they've done over the years. They do a fantastic job of looking with fairness and intellectual honesty at a huge range of issues. Their one about medicating kids is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen about adolescent uh, interactions with pharmacology. Um, And they have a new one out called Dropout Nation. It's dynamite. You've got to watch this thing. Please take an hour and just watch it because it's magnificent. It's very powerful. It's very important. It's very nuanced and it gives the kind of honest look at what happens in the lives of high school students that we don't get from freaking Maggie Gyllenhaal's movie. Speaking of which, there was a film review. It was awesome in the Star Tribune. I don't even know where this is from but uh, the the critics hate this movie. They, it sucks. It's like 30% on the tomato meter at Rotten Tomatoes. It's a horrible movie according to the critics and the this review in the Star Tribune was awesome because it said the headline was "Education drama won't back down, fails to make the grade," and that's one thing that annoys me is that these critics—they, whenever there's a movie about education, it's always an education metaphor they use in their headline. It doesn't make the grade. The makers of this movie should be kept after school. Arp, 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 arp. Uh, but there was a great <laughs> line in the review that said, Theaters should install glow-in-the-dark versions of those old clunking classroom clocks so viewers can count the agonizing minutes ticking by as they watch the movie. Yes! Like I said, I didn't even have to see the movie to know that it was going to suck. Uh, meanwhile, there was a piece in Salon.com which was all about the how the movie got made. And this part is really fascinating. You should totally read this article. It's called School Reform's Propaganda Flick. Walden Media, who funded Won't Back Down, Walden Media is itself an educational content company with a commercial interest in expanding private sector access to American K-12 education, or what Rupert Murdoch, Walden's distribution partner on Won't Back Down, lip-lickingly calls, quote, "A a $500 billion sector in the U.S. alone that's waiting desperately to be transformed. That's, I know, the worst Australian accent ever. But uh, I had to do it because Rupert Murdoch. Oh, my God. So there you go. Why is this movie suddenly coming out? How did they get Maggie Gyllenhaal? Cash money, baby. Let me tell you what. And the robots are coming for us next. robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Doesn't that work better if there's a song attached to it than just the thing from Futurama? The Futurama quote is great, but it gets a little old every week. Music has the ability to be fresh and fun every time you hear it, whereas with a comedy clip, it tends to get boring and dull because it's the same thing over and over again. Music, there's something about the groove of the music, whatever. Here's the miscellaneous file. First of all, from Avery S. Thank you, Avery. Uh, there was an article about, this is from the com. security firm to hold zombie crisis scenario. Now, To be fair, this is a private company doing this, but it's still really weird that this is a company that presumably does work or wants to do work with uh, the U.S. Navy or some part of the U.S. military, and they're doing this zombie crisis scenario training thing Here's an excerpt from the article. Forget the H1N1 pandemic. Could a future crisis arise from an outbreak of viruses that destroy brain cells and render people violently catatonic like zombies? The far-fetched scenario of a government grappling a zombie-like threat, think movies like Night of the Living Dead or more comically Zombieland, has captured the attention and imagination of Brad Barker, president of the security forum Halo Corporation. Okay, out of the article. Look, no, I'm sorry. This has not captured the attention and imagination. It's captured the attention and imagination of everybody on the planet right now zombies are the easiest thing for people to think about in terms of you know, some sort of scenario that they want to do, I'd like to see something that really captures the imagination in a unique way would be if like talking cheeseburgers took over the world, that would be an interesting and creative and unique scenario zombies, zombies are easy isn't? Uh, zombies, uh, it's like a, a spin the wheel type of thing zombies, we'll make zombies, okay, everybody alright with zombies yeah, it's a proven cash cow Next month, the outfit will incorporate, no kidding, zombies into a disaster crisis scenario at the company's annual counterterrorism summit in San Diego, a five-day event providing hands-on training, realistic demonstrations, how the hell do they know, lectures and classes geared to more than 1,000 military personnel, law enforcement officials, medical experts, and state and federal government workers. Now, people like me, we don't need to go to these sort of training scenarios because we've played Left 4 Dead. We've played Resident Evil. We've played Call of Duty Zombies. So we know how we would react in the case of a zombie outbreak. You hold yourself up in a building. You build the window uh, things with the planks of wood. That's how you deal with it. Um, I also got a story from Jason Gullar uh, that said Baxter Robot aims to keep jobs in the U.S., this is about this new robot called Baxter, and it's it's a teachable robot, and it's kind of interesting because here's the here's the summary from the article. Baxter's creators are out to spark a different kind of revolution. They hope the robot, adept at the mindlessly repetitive tasks common on most assembly lines, can increase the productivity of U.S. manufacturing firms and help them retain jobs that would otherwise migrate overseas to low-wage countries like China. Now, out of the article, as I wrote to Jason, I think it sounds like the jobs will go to robots rather than going to China. U.S. workers lose either way. As I've said over and over on the show, it's fine that robots are doing the boring, repetitive work that no one wants to do, but the company will absorb all the wealth that was formerly going to the workers there. Will they be retrained to repair and maintain the robots or led into design fields? Not likely. They'll just be shown the door. However, after I sent that to Jason, I realized that the article goes on to say, To teach Baxter a new job, a human grabs its arms, simulates the desired task, and presses a button to program in the pattern. When the robot doesn't understand what a person is trying to tell it during training, it looks up with a confused expression. Part of the original idea was that Baxter would be so easy for even unskilled workers to train that Rethink, the company presumably, wouldn't have to produce a manual. It ultimately did print one, but Brooks hopes no one uses it. So back out of the article, uh, it's really more a question of how we reorient ourselves as a society rather than whether we use robots or not. Robots are coming. They're going to be doing a lot of stuff. And that's, you know, whatever. We just have to deal with that. That's not necessarily a good or bad thing. The question is, how do we respond to that? How do we take the wealth that was being distributed to workers doing that boring stuff? And what do we do with that wealth? The flux of, and this is a bigger question than just robots, the flux of an economy is a given. Stores open, stores close. Some industries advance and others recede. That's just the way of the world. Is it really a tragic loss that Florence, Idaho is now a ghost town? When there was a rush for mining, everyone was in, you know, small manufacturing started up. People were like, Florence, Idaho, let's move there. And there was a big rush. And then the mining dried up, the manufacturing didn't happen, people moved away, and now it's a ghost town. Is that in and of itself a problem? Where did those people go? Presumably they went to other places where they did find work. Okay, is that in and of itself a problem? What if the same thing happens to Baltimore, Maryland? Okay, if you watch The Wire, you know that's all about how the inner core of that city, which used to have to do with shipping and manufacturing and stuff and steel, uh, that dried up. And now there's, you know, n- nothing really happening. And, and Baltimore is becoming kind of a ghost town in places. And of course, the people are being left behind. So the, the, the process of the economy changing, it, again, isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. And some people accuse uh, you know manufacturing unions in this country as being luddites because they 're saying like, "Oh, it sh- you know they 're just being swept along in the tide of history that 's just the way it goes, and that may be the case, but the question is again, what happens to that wealth? That wealth is going to go somewhere, and if it 's going to automated ports elsewhere in the world, for instance, and there 's no work for the shipping ports of Maryland, of Baltimore what happens to that wealth? And why is it that those workers are suddenly just cast adrift? Like, you suck, get out of here now. The real question is what happens to the people in these places? And again, how we reorient ourselves as a civilization. I would argue it's not okay to just say, like, let the market decide everything, which is pretty much how we do it now. Uh, Unfortunately, our social planners only seem to focus on individual liberty, and those who don't have the capital to transform their lives independently, they can just get bent. That's not okay, I'm sorry. That's not a decent way for a society to orient itself Um, 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 alright this week I want to talk to you about a guy named Sadat X he was part of a group called Brand Nubian Uh, my friend Garrett was way into Brand Nubian once upon a time I've never been a huge fan of Brand Nubian I really like the song they did on the Slam soundtrack that has the chorus that goes Time is running out, tick-tock, like the grains of sand. Every man sharpens man like steel sharpens steel. The threat of a war is real. Where are my soldiers for the battlefield? Eric, you should have just played a sample of that instead of, uh, yeah, I know, but uh, whatever, I don't have a sample of that, it's a good song check it out, I think it's called Time Is Running Out from an album by the same name, Brand Nubian's last album together, maybe, I don't know anyway, one of the members of Brand Nubian, Sadat X went off and did his own thing, and he has a, a, a lot of really cool tracks, his best album is easily one called Black October, uh, which has to do with, a, uh, I think either a drug or a gun charge that he got caught for and then he sent up to prison, so it was talking about when he has to go to prison in October, and he made the album before going to prison so it's this interesting look at you know where he's headed and, and the regrets he has and his whole thing about he has one line in the first track it's like um man i can't believe i did it. if i could kick my own self in the ass i would and uh it, very intelligent reflective uh, apparently he's a teacher of some sort in in new york city so uh, just a really cool guy a lot of really interesting uh, Lyrics about a variety of topics, uh, some of them kind of hard to figure out, but one of them is just reading the New York Post and just sort of talking about what's going on in the world and rhyming freestyle about it. Really well done stuff. And he also has a track called Gamer. What the whole say to the 8 Where'd you get that belt? Nice See Ray's ball in the place. No doubt, no doubt. was all my chain for the video game. Take long range now, my scenario change. see race set the stage, blazing. I unknown this. No matter how serious, you react at your own risk. The like sun's kid Nicky on moon patrol. Mike Tyson's punch out, card with the code. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, up, up down. B.A. start. Bars get Baraka's card. Right Blanco with shards. Shy y- hair, kung fuin'. Russian attack. Metroid void. Stuck on the board without, without a map. Yo, Joe, I sneak eyes with the gunhole pants. Roadblock with the snow job hands the the crown when laying it down. You can't the clouds. overdose, get open. Like the first time I just love it. There's so many awesome references to classic video games and stuff. And uh, it's just really good stuff, you know. And Sadat X has a lot of tracks that are entertaining in that way. It sounds funky, but he's got some good messages in there as well. So check him out. Sadat X again, his best album is Black October, and if you want to hear some of his earlier stuff check out brand Nubian where he worked with two other guys and they have some good tracks back in the day and now it's time Press, for one of the Romans cut you man lend me your ear stop repent because the engine is near but don't feel you can't function if you live in a fear pay attention you gotta listen to here wait for man The quote this week comes from David Simon. He was born in 1960. He is a writer who created the epic TV series The Wire. If you haven't seen The Wire, you haven't ever watched a great TV show because it's so many amazing characters. The depth of the storytelling is fantastic. So much powerful symbolism and the dialogue and just so many things about The Wire are amazing and wonderful and awesome. It's a very violent show. It's very gruesome. There's a lot of cursing. So it's not for children, but it is a very powerful and important show. Obama, I think, at one point said it was his favorite show. And then David Simon said, yeah, well, why don't you call off this drug war that's causing so much suffering? And it was a great interchange. Someday I'll find that quote and give it to you. But in the meantime, I have a quote from a book that he, well, he, um, it was written by David Alvarez, who was a writer on the show. And David Simon had an introduction that he wrote about stuff. And this is a really good quote from it. the 2009 companion book, The Wire, Truth Be Told. He wrote this. Mythology is important, essentially even, to a national psyche. And Americans, in particular, are desperate in their pursuit of national myth. This is understandable to a point coding an elemental truth with the bright gloss of heroism and national sacrifice is the prerogative of the nation state but to carry the same lies forward generation after generation so that our collective sense of the american experiment is better and more comforting than it ought to be this is where mythology has its cost and a cost not only to the united states but to the world as a whole in a young and struggling nation a moderate degree of self-elevating bullshit has a certain earnest charm for a militarized technological superpower overextended in both its economic and foreign policy impulses. It begins to approach the Orwellian. All right, that's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org, synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and lots of other stuff, videos I've made. Uh, shout-outs this week to my brother Mark for playing my request when he was DJing on WVSF, v, WVFS in uh, Tallahassee. So, <laughs> Way to go, DJ Catfish. Word uh play some more awesome tracks. I'll give you some more hip-hop recommendations. I'll probably be up tomorrow morning, Sunday, uh, to give you recommendations over the internet. Uh, Amar Parvez uh, for the kind feedback on Twitter. Thank you very much. Everybody who listens. Uh, David Tripney for all the tweets and everyone who sent me news stories and stuff to uh, play and and all sorts of other things. Um, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it, people. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a Thank you for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. Send emails to ESP at FBESP.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See store for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Damn, I'm hungry. It's time for lunch. Hey, Tito, you want some lunch, buddy?